I'm Amy, and this is my husband, Chris. So we don't usually start an episode this way, but the crimes committed in this story are so vicious that I wanted to deliver a warning before we go on. Some of what you'll hear today may be disturbing, and some descriptions are graphic, but none of this story is embellished in any way. This is the true story of killer couple Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. In St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, Holy Cross Secondary School had already let out for the day and the students were walking home. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka were driving around in their gold-colored Nissan searching for their next victim. Then they saw her, 15-year-old Kristen French, walking through the parking lot of Grace Lutheran Church. She was wearing her school uniform and Mickey Mouse watch on her wrist. Paul and Carla were in their early 20s, both blonde and beautiful, and when the situation called for it, they had no problem putting on a mask to make the people around them believe they were nothing but a beautiful couple in love. So when Carla got out of the car with a map and called Kristen over to ask for directions, the 15-year-old came willingly to help. That's when Paul crept up behind her and put a knife to her throat. They forced her into the front seat. Carla sat behind her, pulling Kristen's long hair like a rope to keep her in the car so they could take her back to Paul and Carla's house. It was April 16th, 1992, the day before Good Friday. For the next three days, Paul and Carla raped and tortured her, videotaping every second of the attack. Okay, now on Easter Sunday, they killed her, washed her body, and cut her long hair off so she couldn't be identified so easily or... At least that's what Carla said later on when she was on the stand. But they must not have been too concerned about it because they left her naked in a ditch about 45 minutes away from their house, but only a few minutes away from the cemetery where another victim of theirs was buried. Then Paul and Carla went to her parents for Easter dinner. Kristen's body was discovered on April 30th, 1992. You're listening to the horrific true story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, but I want to ask you to stick with us to the very end, and not just because you're not going to believe what happens to this couple, but also because we want to tell you one more story about a killer couple that one of you wrote in about, and you're going to get both stories in only about 30 minutes. After all, this is the only podcast giving you twice the crime in half the time. And if that sounds good to you, could you do us a favor and remember to tap subscribe so you don't miss a thing? Now, on with the story, babe. Okay, so it only took about 30 minutes after Paul and Carla kidnapped Christian French for the police to get involved. First, they found one of her shoes, a lock of her hair, and a ripped map of Scarborough in the church parking lot. And they found plenty of witnesses who remembered seeing two people forcing the schoolgirl into a cream-colored Chevy Camaro. With what they thought was a good description of the car, the police focused all their alerts on finding it in hopes of finding Kristen. But what they actually should have been looking for was Paul's gold Nissan. So there was also another witness that weekend, but she had a very different story to tell. Now, this is interesting. On April 18th, two days after taking Kristen, Paul went out for pizza and happened to pass by another would-be victim that he'd been stalking a month earlier. She'd noticed him, gotten his license plate at the time, and told the police about this stalker, but they didn't really do anything with that. And this time she told the police she'd seen him again and the car he was driving and his freaking license plate number, but they didn't follow up on her report. 
So Kristen was the couple's third and last known murder, but it would be almost another year before police caught up to Paul and Carla. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka met in the restaurant of a Howard Johnson's hotel in Scarborough, just outside of Toronto. He was a blonde, charming 23-year-old working at an accounting firm. Carla was a blonde, sweet 17-year-old senior in high school. According to an article called The Homolka Enigma by Joe Chidley, Paul saw Carla sitting with a friend and told the guy he was with he wanted to hook up with her. It only took him a few hours to make that happen. That was October 17th, 1987. She was Barbie to his Ken and they fell in love. How sweet. At the time they met, Scarborough police were investigating a series of sexual assaults. They originally thought that those assaults had started in May of 1987. So just like a few months before Killer Ken met Killer Barbie. And all those assaults seemed to be pointing to one man, a guy the newspapers were calling the Scarborough Rapist, or we know him as Paul Bernardo. So his victims were women between 15 and 22, and most were attacked near bus stops outside. Sometimes he would follow them home and like rape them in their own backyards. They were all beaten and verbally abused, and they were all threatened. If they tried to report what happened, he would find them and kill them. And by then, he'd raped or attempted to rape more than a dozen women. And in 2006, Paul Bernardo confessed to 10 more assaults starting in 1986, crimes the police had never connected to the Scarborough Rapist. One man had even been mistakenly convicted for one of Paul's crimes, and he served months in prison before Paul's surprise confession set him free. But despite the fact, get this, that a few of his victims did come forward with descriptions of him over the years, the police didn't release a composite picture of the Scarborough Rapist until 1990. And by then, Paul was well on his way to kidnapping and murder with the help and encouragement of his fiancée, Carla. Did I mention they got engaged in December 1989? Now, the first description of the Scarborough rapist the police released to the public was chilling because it sounded like someone so normal, okay? A, A monster those girls would never see coming, and it really looked a lot like Paul. According to the victim that gave this description, his blonde hair was parted on the left and feathered over his right ear. It was the 80s. He wore a baby blue nylon jacket, khaki knee-length walking shorts with a pleated front, and running shoes with no socks. In fact, it looked so much like Paul that some people he knew called the tip line and pointed the police to Paul. They interviewed him in November 1990, and yeah, Paul agreed. It did look like him. He voluntarily gave Metro Toronto police his hair, blood, and saliva samples so they could, quote, rule him out. But he was so good at putting on that mask and making people believe he was just, you know, a regular guy that they didn't consider him a real suspect, especially since he volunteered his DNA. And they took samples from over a 100 persons of interest as part of that investigation. But those samples sat on a shelf along with thousands of other samples from crimes around the country, and they didn't get around to testing Paul's for years. Meanwhile, Paul moved in with Carla's family in St. Catharines. No one knew it at the time, but he'd lost his job as an accountant, and he was making money by smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border. 
Carla was working as a technician in a veterinary office. It's been said that she always loved animals. But in an article called 15 Things Her Victims' Families Want You to Know on BabyGaga.com, it seems that her school friends remember her a little differently. One friend remembers Carla dropping her pet hamster from a second-story window to see if a homemade parachute would work. It didn't, and the animal died. Carla didn't seem all that broken up about it and supposedly even went back and dug it up to give it an autopsy. Serial killer That's creepy as hell. stuff. Oh, these two were a match made in hell. That's for sure. Except there was just one thing about her that Paul never liked. She wasn't a virgin when they met. Ew. He complained about it all the time. So often that Carla thought Paul might have been getting ready to break up with her. <laughs> so she gave him what he wanted. A virgin, her 15-year-old little sister, Tammy. Okay. At his trial, Paul said the first time he raped her sister was in July 1990. Carla stole drugs from the vet office where she worked, and one night she was making the three of them spaghetti dinner, and she added the stolen sedative to Tammy's plate. When she passed out, Paul said Carla helped him take advantage of her, but only for about a minute. And then Tammy started waking up, so they stopped, and she never knew what happened. Uh, but they kept trying. For Christmas that year, Carla did it again. She stole a strong anesthetic from work, this one called halothane. And on December 23rd, 1990, Carla laced Tammy's eggnog with rum and sedatives. When she passed out, she covered her nose and mouth with a halothane-soaked rag and took her little sister into the basement rec room while her parents and her other sister slept upstairs. Her and Paul started the camcorder and took turns raping her on camera. Now, what happened next is up for debate. Okay. At trial, Carla said she noticed Tammy was, quote, looking funny. And when Tammy started throwing up and choking on her own vomit, they tried to revive her, but they couldn't save her life. To the police who came to the house that night, Carla said they found Tammy in her bedroom choking on her own vomit when she and Paul were up late doing laundry in the basement. Because yeah. that's a thing. <laughs> And when police questioned how Tammy had gotten what looked like this large red burn on the side of her face and like around her mouth, they determined it must have been a result of the corrosive vomit, like her stomach acids. And her official cause of death was listed as accidental, choking on her vomit after drinking too much. After her sister's death, Paul and Carla moved out so her parents could grieve Tammy in peace. And they got a place of their own about 15 minutes away from St. Catherine's. So weeks later, and we have video evidence of this. We don't, but there is video <laughs> evidence showing Paul and Carla role-playing sex with Carla dressed in Tammy's school uniform and Paul telling, quote, Tammy that he loves her. <laughs> oh, my God. Sickening. That's so weird. God, so gross. And, you know, Carla and Paul's wedding was planned for June 29, 1991. But just weeks before the big day, according to the book Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams, Carla thought Paul might be getting cold feet. So she brought him another 15-year-old virgin. <laughs> this victim, only known as Jane Doe, was a girl Carla knew from a pet store. That she used to go to or something? I guess. Uh, she told her she was taking her out for a girl's night, but after slipping sedatives into her drink, she took her home to Paul oh, as a wedding gift. Oh, and just like they had with Tammy, 
Paul and Carla switched on the camcorder and videotaped each other violating Jane. The next morning, when Jane woke up, she didn't remember what happened. She just thought she was hungover from drinking so much, and she went home. But that rape wasn't enough to satisfy the two of them. A week later, in the early morning hours of June 15th, 1991, Paul came across 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey. She'd been locked out of her house after coming home after curfew. Now, Paul offered her a cigarette, and when she came closer to take it from him, he forced her into the car, blindfolded her, and took her home to Carla. So the two of them, yep, got out the video camera and started assaulting Leslie. (sighs) On the stand, Paul said Carla noticed her blindfold was slipping, and she was worried Leslie could ID them if they let her go, so she killed her. Now, according to him, he was out getting pizza and movies at the time, and he never intended to kill Leslie. Carla's version said Paul strangled Leslie to death. But they both agree that they hid Leslie's body in their basement on June 16th. Upstairs, Paul, Carla, and her other sister and her parents were celebrating Father's Day with a dinner party. What to do with Leslie's body would have to wait. When they left that night, then Paul and Carla decided to cut up Leslie's body, encase her in cement, and throw her in Lake Gibson, which is about 11 miles away from their house. So the next day, Paul went to the hardware store to buy bags of cement. (laughs) And he kept the receipts, like the good ex-accountant he was. And they were used as evidence at his trial. And they followed through with their twisted plan, except one of the blocks was too big for them to get it into the water. It weighed almost 200 pounds, apparently. So... They left it near the shoreline where it was found by two fishermen on June 29th, 1991. Police were able to identify Leslie using the serial number from the retainer they left in her mouth. And on the same day that Leslie was found, Paul and Carla got married. Now, 10 months later, on April 16th, 1992, they took their next known victim, Kristen French. Her body was found on April 30th. And in May 1992, Leslie's body was exhumed and police discovered identical marks on her body and Kristen's. So they said they looked like someone slightly small, so not Paul, had been kneeling on both of their backs. Hmm. And that discovery, along with other damage to the bodies, gave them what they needed to connect both deaths. That investigation became known as the schoolgirl murders. But at the time, the task force didn't connect those victims with the Scarborough rapist. That same month, acting on a tip, Paul was interviewed about the schoolgirl murders. But again, the police believed his fake story that he had nothing to do with it, and they noticed that he drove a Nissan, not the Camaro they had been looking for as part of the investigation into the Kristen French case. But in an effort to further conceal their identities, Paul and Carla changed their last names to Teal. Now, that's a name they picked in honor of a fictional serial killer named Martin Teal. Featured in the 1988 movie Criminal Law. Oh, my God. Then right after Christmas that year, Paul used a flashlight to beat Carla severely. In interviews later, he said he did it because he was mourning the anniversary of Tammy's death. And Carla wasn't properly upset about it. She said he beat her up because he was an abusive husband as well as a rapist and a murderer. But despite her injuries, she went back to work less than a week later and told her co-workers she was in a car accident. Well, they'd never seen her so black and blue, and they didn't believe her story, so they called her parents. Her mom found her at her house 
and this is a quote, she was frantically looking for something. But before she could find what she was looking for, they forced her to the hospital where pictures of her injuries were taken. Mm. Now, according to some reports, Carla was wearing a Mickey Mouse watch in those pictures. The same Mickey Mouse watch Kristen French was wearing when she was kidnapped? The watch that was missing when they found her? Well, between you and me, yeah, probably. But it was never fully understood or explored. But the police were called so Carla could file domestic abuse charges. Paul was arrested for beating her up, but he was later released. And meanwhile, Carla left him. She went to live with her parents. So in February 1993, two months after Carla moved out and more than two years after Paul gave his DNA to Toronto police as part of the Scarborough rapist investigation, the lab finally got around to testing it. And it was a match. But still... They didn't yet connect him to the murder of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. They wanted more evidence to get him for the Scarborough rapes. So they put him under surveillance, and then they reached out to his estranged wife, Carla, to find out what she knew about it. (laughs) On February 9th, the Toronto police interviewed Carla, and they told her they suspected Paul was the Scarborough rapist. All right, now... This gets a little confusing, so just bear with me. The Toronto police were investigating those rapes, right? And they had Paul's DNA that was connecting him to those cases. But a separate task force was investigating the schoolgirl murders. And they asked the Toronto police to ask Carla some questions to see if they could find a connection between Paul and those murders. And one of the questions they asked her about was that Mickey Mouse watch. Mm. So up to that time, she was keeping the interview focused on the fact that Paul had abused her a couple of months earlier, and she's pretty, you could even say she was evading questions. But reports say that when the watch came up, she went white and was noticeably nervous. Now, they figured she was just stressed about being interviewed by the police, but in actuality, she knew the truth. The police were on a path to connecting the Scarborough rapist with the schoolgirl murders, and that was not going to turn out so well for Carla. So, Carla thought fast and acted faster. Two days after her police interview, she got a lawyer and told him everything. He told the police she would testify against Paul in exchange for full immunity. I mean, she probably didn't tell him everything. Right. But they actually ended up offering her partial immunity instead. If she would testify, she would only be charged with manslaughter and the murders of Leslie and Kristen. But the sentences could be served concurrently, so in total, she would only serve 12 years in prison. It's it's insane, right? Okay. But at this point in the story, the only people that know that there is video evidence of Carla's real involvement in the murders are Carla and Paul. She told the police she was a battered wife and Basically, another one of Paul's victims. She told them that Paul forced her into helping him assault her sister, Tammy. And when she accidentally died, Paul used that to blackmail her into helping him kidnap and assault the other victims. And at the time, police had the photographic evidence of Carla's beating, you know, she was black and blue, to back up her story. And frankly, without her testimony, they didn't have any other evidence to tie Paul to these schoolgirl murders. So they made a deal with the devil. Paul was arrested on February 17, 1993. Two days later, the police searched his and Carla's house. They found newspaper clippings from all the Scarborough attacks, and they discovered a ton of books about sexual torture and violent porn. 
They even found video of Paul and Carla having sex with another woman, but they didn't find the videos they'd made of them assaulting Tammy, Jane Doe, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French. They didn't even know they existed yet. Well, Paul knew that those tapes were in the house, of course. Yeah. And the police kept his house as a crime scene for 71 days. When they released it on May 6, 1993, Paul's lawyer walked in, unscrewed a ceiling light fixture in the upstairs bathroom, and retrieved the videos his client had told him to get. But he didn't turn them over to the police or the courts. He didn't even watch them. He just held on to them for over a year. Crazy. Yeah. Meanwhile, in June of 1993, so just about a month after he got those tapes, Carla went on trial. She pled guilty to manslaughter and testified about what happened, in her in her words, just as she agreed to. And just like they promised her, she was sentenced to 12 years in prison. About a year later, in September 1994, Paul's lawyer quit. Okay. At this point, you probably know why, mm. right? He watched... The tapes. He watched the tapes. And what he saw was so horrific, he was traumatized. He confessed that he'd kept that evidence for about 16 months, and mm. he got his own lawyer. A few years later, he was charged with obstructing justice and holding on to child pornography, but then he was acquitted. And ultimately, he was ordered to give the videos to Paul's new lawyer. Now, that guy kept the tapes for about two weeks, and then he gave them to the prosecution. During Paul's trial, the tapes were played for the jury, but the rest of the court was only allowed to hear the audio. Both Carla and Paul can be heard and seen on the tapes as enthusiastic rapists. Some reports say Carla can be heard giving Paul directions about what to do. And even though the tapes were burned after the trial at the request of the family, some horrific details became public knowledge. And as you can imagine... Carla's sweetheart of a deal enraged the entire country once they heard just how much she was involved. I'm enraged right now. But Paul's defense argued that he never intended Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen to die. In Leslie and Kristen's murders, Paul insisted that he left the house both times to get food and movies, and he put gas in the car, which he kept receipts for. And in each case, he said he came home and the girls were dead at the hands of Carla. Carla, of course, said Paul forced her to do everything that was seen on the tapes and then forced her to watch him kill the girls. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is interesting. Some reports point out that as the Scarborough rapist, Paul never killed his victims and that the murders only started when Carla came into his life. But I guess that depends on who you believe, right? Yeah. And for the murders and rapes and kidnappings and assaults, Paul got life in prison in September 1995. He was up for parole in 2018, and he didn't get it. And the parole board made a note of the fact that he never really seemed sorry for his victims or really took responsibility for any of his actions. Carla came up for parole after three years in prison, but she was denied because, just like Paul, the only sorry any of your victims ever got was for her sister, Tammy. In prison, she also started a relationship with another murderer on the men's side of the prison. Now, that didn't help her case when she tried to tell the parole board she'd changed. So she served her full 12 years and was released in July of 2005. A week before she was released, a judge tried to make sure she wouldn't be set free without being held to a list of restrictions. Basically, parole. She'd have to check in, 
make the courts aware of her current address. She couldn't contact Paul or Leslie or Kristen's families. She couldn't be around kids under 16, and she had to give her DNA to a national database. This judge was adamant about these restrictions because he believed she was a risk to society. But then in November, only a few months after her release, another judge overturned those restrictions. So she was now completely and totally free. The lawyer for her victim's family said it felt like they'd been kicked in the stomach when they heard about it. And I got to assume that a lot more swearing was probably part of that statement. Carla ended up marrying her lawyer's brother. Today, she has three kids and she still lives in Canada. Unfreaking believable. I love you, baby, but... (laughs) If you force me to let you rape my sister, I don't think I'd go ahead and marry you a few months later and then do it again and again and again. And God knows how many actual victims they had, because in this recap, we really just talked about the murders that were proven in court. Don't worry, sweetie. You know me. You don't have to. You can trust me. Nobody's going to be forced to do anything to anybody. (laughs) Now, as long as we're talking killer couples, I mean, why stop now? Don't we have a listener story that's pretty crazy? Oh, yeah. Okay. This is from listener Shirley Lankenstein. And weirdly, this killer couple is also from Canada. This is the story of Jasmine Richardson and Jeremy Steinke. Jasmine was a 12-year-old girl. She was living with her mom and her dad and her 8-year-old brother in Medicine Hat, Alberta in April 2006. Earlier that year, she'd been to a concert and met a guy named Jeremy Steinke. Jeremy told Jasmine... He was a 300-year-old werewolf who could live forever by drinking blood, and so could she if she joined him. Hmm. In reality, he was a 23-year-old unemployed high school dropout. But Jasmine, you know, she really liked the idea of this supernatural power, and they kept in touch online until April. That's when her parents found out what she was up to. And naturally, they forbid her from contacting him again. So Jasmine came up with an idea. According to evidence presented at trial, this is what she emailed to Jeremy. Quote, I hate them, so I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. And he responded with this. Quote, well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with like details and stuff. So they did. Yeah. And on April 22nd, 2006, They watched the movie Natural Born Killers. Jeremy calls it the best love story of all time. Then he drank a ton of beer and a bottle of vampire red wine, did a gram of cocaine, and went over to Jasmine's house. He stabbed her mother 12 times. Her dad fought back with a screwdriver, but by the end, he was stabbed 24 times. And then, according to Jeremy, Jasmine herself went upstairs to his room and slashed her eight-year-old brother's throat when he was in bed. Then the two of them ran away, all the way to a town in Saskatchewan, about 81 miles away. So the plan was that they were there going to meet a friend who was offered to help by having his car ready and waiting when they got there. But that was just a pit stop on their way to Germany, where they dreamed of buying a castle to live in as immortals. Well, it didn't work out exactly the way they hoped. The day after the murders, a neighbor kid came by to play with Jasmine's brother, and he spotted her parents' bodies through the window. At first, the police thought the murderer kidnapped Jasmine, but it didn't take long to figure out the disturbing messages between her and Jeremy. Even with that evidence, they might not have caught them, but Jeremy's friend turned them in during a stop at a gas station in Leader, Saskatchewan. But... They still needed more evidence, a confession preferably, so they decided to trick Jeremy. Probably not too hard a thing to do. 
As they were transporting him to prison, they put an undercover cop in the van with him. Okay. <laughs> now, they were hoping Jeremy might spill some details they could use against him in court. So, he did. <laughs> and not only did he brag about being the one that committed those murders, but he told this undercover officer that Jasmine was even more twisted than he was. <laughs> According to an article by Candace Sutton in news.com.au, Jeremy said it didn't bother her at all. She didn't cry or anything. She says murder is the next closest step to immortality. In fact, the next day when we were on the road, she effing laughed about it. She's got a few screws loose. That, that's a quote. And that's from a guy who bragged about drinking blood and said he ate sugar cookies made with blood. Oh, God. Quote, when they came out of the oven, they were pink. That's how much blood was in them. Oh, my God. Come on. Holy crazy nut disgusting. job. Before her trial, Jasmine was examined by psychiatrists, and they discovered that she was, quote, seriously disturbed <laughs> and didn't show any remorse for the murders of her family. Yeah, I could have told you she was seriously disturbed. I only, I only have a marketing degree. Yeah, me too. On July 9th, 2007, she was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to, get this, the maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. Oh, hell no. Yeah, 10 years for three it. murders? Okay, that's what should be. That's a crime. That's a crime. But here's why. In Canada, at least in 2007 when this happened, a person younger than 12 can't be charged with a crime. And the maximum penalty at that age, no matter what they did, is 10 years. So while she was in prison, she finished school, she went to college, and she was released in 2016. As for Jeremy, he said, quote, I know I'm pretty twisted, but I didn't think I would be that twisted. I never thought that I'd actually kill anybody when I found my soulmate, my true love. I just, for some reason, I was willing to do anything for her. He got life in prison. And if he really is an immortal werewolf, I guess he'll be there forever. <laughs> Here's hoping. Happy freaking almost Valentine's Day. But yeah. thanks so much for writing in with your story, Shirley. If you have a story you want to share, please email us at hello at truecrimerecaps.com or just send us a message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for letting us tell you about these killer couples. You can watch us tape this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube at True Crime Recaps or listen and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please help us spread the word with a five-star review. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us. Take care. Bye. Bye.